As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Let's catch up with Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi. Liz, any reason to believe, and good morning, it's always great to catch up with you, you know that. Any reason to believe that this bond market, stock market correlation continues in the way it has done over the previous month, over the next three months? Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, I think 2023 has shown us that anything is possible. So it's certainly possible that the correlation remains positive in the sense that we continue to see yields come down. Stocks are celebrating that, particularly growthier stocks, which I think is a rational move, at least initially. So I do think that the correlation could stay positive for a little while. What we're looking at here, especially into 2024, is that we've been wanting cooling in a lot of this data. We've been wanting the cooling in inflation. We've been wanting a labor market that gets a little bit more imbalanced. So we've seen some of that data, things like continuing claims on a steady move upwards since September. We know that the manufacturing economy is still feeling some pain. We're hearing data out of the consumer that they're pulling back on spending a little bit. So we've wanted this cooling. The question into 2024 will be, can we stop the cooling before the economy tips into contraction and makes us all nervous? If we start to get data that gets too cool too quickly, that's when that correlation between stocks and bonds breaks down, where I think you see bonds rally. So you see yields continue to fall because people got afraid, but stocks also come down uh, in tandem. Liz, you work for SoFi and you work on the investment wing of it, not necessarily on the financial technology aspect that caters to usually younger individuals who are trying to manage their finances and, and take out credit. I'm wondering, though, what you make from an economic and investment perspective of people who are doing more buy now, pay later, who are increasing their credit card bills, who are increasing on their delinquencies and their defaults. It's certainly concerning, and it's something that I've been watching for the last few months, we've seen delinquencies tick up so far in just the subprime auto loan sector. But you've seen, as we all know, credit card debt get to really high levels. Hasn't broken yet, hasn't been an issue yet. But the thing about where we are this time of year, we talk a lot about this being a positive time of year for the market. And as we all know, the Santa Claus rally, a possibility later this year. And we've got holiday spending going on. And so far, the data from holiday spending has been maybe a little bit higher than expected. However, 
What happens in January and February is that if consumers were doing that holiday spending on credit, so things that like buy now, pay later, or on credit cards, the bill comes due in January and February. Now, this happens every year, but this year could be a time where we're seeing that bill come due and delinquencies tick up because consumers have been using buy now, pay later in larger quantities than they did last year. How does that affect your uh, your investment strategy? I mean, basically, are you looking to January and February to see those increase in defaults in order to get more bearish and say that maybe the bond market could rally more, but that's going to be a negative when it comes to equities? Well, so the bull case and, and a lot of the optimists have been hanging their hat on the strength of the consumer and the consumer has remained strong. There's obviously appetite to spend. There's appetite to travel. We're seeing the consumer still get out there and spend their money both in stores and online. But over time, if the labor market cools or if consumers really are feeling the pain of inflation and recognizing the idea that inflation has stopped growing as quickly, but it hasn't come down. So for consumers to really get some relief, you would need some deflationary prints. And we haven't gotten those yet. So if the data does start to suggest that the consumer has pulled back or the labor market is cooling to a point that's going to cause the consumer to pull back, then that is going to be negative for equities, particularly from these levels. So watching that uh, on a sector basis, though, it's not it may not be a wide swath of a drawdown. Right. So if yields are falling, tech stocks probably still can do OK in that environment. But then you see the pain on things like consumer discretionary stocks. You see the pain on cyclicals, because right now I think the market is in this place where we're not sure if we're going to have a cyclical expansion or not. We haven't confirmed in one direction or another. And we're sort of waiting to see. Super difficult to make calls on this market. You mentioned sectors, Liz, so let's finish there. What are your favorite sectors going into year-end and beyond? Well, look, as yields fall, I think for the near term, at least, tech stocks still can hold up well. This is also a period of time after the last hike and before the first cut that stocks tend to do okay. So I don't necessarily see a huge drawdown unless there's some exogenous shock. But going into 2024, I think that we need, if the bull case comes true, we need some broadening out in the equity market. I am still nervous about a drawdown. I am worried that we're going to get data that cools it too much. So I would be cautious in cyclicals. So I would still be looking at things like consumer staples. I think the utilities trade is okay. If you're looking for growth, but you don't want that rate sensitivity, I think healthcare is a good place to be. And I do think that we see a resurgence in energy stocks because supply will continue to get cut. Interesting final point. Liz, thank you. It's going to catch up with you as always. Liz Young there of SoFi in this equity market. Lauren Goodwin joining us now, economist, director of portfolio strategy at New York Life Investments, director of disinflationary Nirvana narratives. Do you buy it? I don't buy it. I think we're sitting there right now, but that it's a stop on the train towards recession. And the reason for that, twofold, really, one is the long and variable lags of monetary policy. We're sort of right on time for an average recession timeline from the first Fed rate hike. But the other is that if we did get a a cut in March or May and inflation wasn't falling precipitously, we weren't heading towards recession then I think we'd see financial market conditions ease pretty significantly. And Chair Powell and other Fed members have been very insistent that they don't want to see that. That's a a recipe for likely a reacceleration of activity and makes the inflationary environment more sticky. 
So when we take a look at where you want to play the best returns for 60-40, going back to 1991, do you lean in or do you lean against it and say someone's got to be wrong here, whoever it is, I'm going to move against. Well, as as much as ink that we've spilt, I'm a part of it. Uh, as much words we've put out there about the soft versus hard landing debate, neither side has been the winner for investors all year. And I expect that to be the case for the first part of 2024 as, as well. What I mean by that is the only thing we're really certain about is that the market is facing uncertainty. And so landing strongly in one camp or the other isn't likely to be the answer. It's quality. And I think we're seeing that over the course of this year, investors leaning into profitability, uh, to dividend yields, and to areas of the market where investors expect that no matter what happens in the first half of next year, they can build some resilience. So when in doubt, buy Microsoft. <laughs> Is that basically what you're saying? I mean, essentially, that's basically been the market narrative so far. Or they're not the market narrative. This is what people are saying. We don't know what's going to happen. We'll just buy big tech and sit and wait. It's a part of the story. One of the things I think will shift over the course of 2024 specific to the tech narrative is that the excitement around productivity and the, the new technological developments we're getting from the artificial intelligence trend have been centered in the foundational layer of tech, not least because that's also where consumers spend money. As the consumer experiences the sort of dissonance of high price levels that, that you've covered so well, I expect that more of the story around tech will actually expand into the digital infrastructure and the application layer that get built on top of the foundational layer of tech. Which really uh, is sort of part of the difficulty understanding what's going on because there are these sort of uh, secular overlays like artificial intelligence, like weight loss drugs that are put over a lot of uncertainty and frankly a lot of underperformance of other rank and file companies. We saw, for example, uh, over the past week, pretty big inflows into large cap U.S. stocks. We saw outflows yet again from the Russell 2000. What do you make of that, that basically small caps are going to be uh, left for dead in a sense and continue to underperform dramatically, even with some sort of settling out in this narrative? Small caps as the economy slows, tend to underperform because they don't have the overhead, the administrative overhead that helps them to digest higher rates, higher costs, the way that large caps do. So it's not necessarily a, a matter of sector, but one of business model, one of truly size. I think there are a couple of exceptions. The tech sector is one of them where profitability can, can exist in mid and small caps as well. But as we move through into Q1, I expect that the preference for, frankly, defensive allocation plays, large caps is one of them, defensive sectors, I really like infrastructure equity there. I think they're going to continue to gain ground because we're going to see more evidence that the data is slowing. Isn't the best defense just cash? <laughs> There's, um, there are benefits to cash when you're expecting a, a major fallout in the market. But the, the thing, one of the things that I think is so challenging about cash right now is that we see such strong opportunity to harvest yield in sectors of the economy that even if we see recession, which I expect, and even as spreads widen, you can still gain meaningful yield uptick in, for example, the high yield bond market. Funny that you say that. High yield bonds had the biggest four week inflow going back to June 2020. This according to Bank of America, Michael's Hartnett. This to me highlights exactly what you're talking about. A lot of people are saying we don't have certainty about where things are going. We're going to pile into cash, $75 billion going in there in the past week. Uh, but we're also going to pile into income because we know we're going to get something. Are you seeing sort of the reversal of the bond stock dynamic over the past 
two decades, where really bonds are your equity drivers in some ways, your income plays, and then you can sort of shoot for the moon on the peripheries with some equities. Uh, yes, that is what we're seeing. But I think what's specifically interesting about high yield is that we see investors, and, and we're doing the same, taking equity-like risk in high yield because you can harvest a, a, a meaningful coupon on these bonds while acknowledging that Fed programs early in the pandemic made the credit quality of this sector much more interesting relative to past economic cycles. So even if you expect spreads to widen, prices to fall as, as the economy stumbles, you can still uh, make up for it with the income that you're able to, to capture from that sector. So is that your highest conviction heading into next year? Can you give us a sense of kind of how you're framing at a time where there isn't a lot of conviction? Yeah, so I want to be clear that even though we have a, a recessionary call in the first half of the year, I don't think that's particularly pessimistic. I think that's an optimistic scenario for the economy. It allows a reset. Um, I also think that we're going to see risk assets continue to do well for the next couple of months. So what we're doing is taking advantage of this sugar rush while we have it to rebalance into themes that we think will work particularly well. We've talked about a few of them, just defensive sectors are really like infrastructure equity. We like high yield. Um, and I do think that there's room to run um, in duration as well. Do you think that the uh, cyber truck is attractive? I, I will admit that I just saw it for the first time after hearing been? John say this morning, it looks like a kindergartner drew it. Okay. And I could not disagree. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's where have you been? Hiding under a rock? This thing has been out there. Lauren Goodwin, thank you so much for being with us. Wonderful to see you. Lauren Goodwin of New York Life Investments, thank you. And she, of course, will say, no, Lisa, you've been hiding under a rock because I haven't seen, what movie haven't I seen? Die Hard. Die Hard, which I guess is a bad thing. and that It's you, a Christmas movie. I said it. It's movie. a Christmas Why movie. Is this a debate? Everybody agrees. It's a Christmas movie. Okay, so I'll well, watch look, it. You look on, this, on social media and just put in Die Hard, and you'll see uh, this enormous debate goes on every year. It's real. It's a real debate because check out social media. I will check out social media and I will watch the movie. Uh, thank you uh, for being with us, Lauren. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Nadia Martin-Wicken joins us now, the director at Svelin Capital. Nadia, let's start there. This word voluntary. How important is that word voluntary at OPEC Plus? I think the market finds the word voluntary very problematic because it means that the group 
did not manage to together agree that this is what we actually have to do. And this is why the oil price has not strengthened uh, since, since it was announced. What kind of follow through do you expect off the back of the announcement then? We know what the market's preoccupied with, a single word. What are you telling clients? Well, that on the margin, we then see that there's around 300,000 barrels per day coming less from UAE, coming less from Kuwait, and 100,000 barrels per day coming less from Saudi Arabia. So that makes Q1 look slightly better and call it a balanced market, right? But it's only a Q1 cut and it doesn't really change the picture. And again, you know, what it was different about this OPEC Plus meeting is that it's not a long duration cut, right? Last year, they made it a long duration. And now they're only looking at three months forward. The expectation for them is, of course, that we will start to see demand pick up and then we will see draws, especially into the second half of next year. But what we saw throughout this quarter is a lack of draws does not make the oil price rally. Right. And we're going to see the same in the first quarter, we believe. There was a story, Nadia, on the Bloomberg talking about how algorithmic traders are confusing all of this and that we can't really get the same kind of signal from oil prices because of this. Do you buy that or do you think that oil prices are sending a very strong signal about growth globally, but also particularly in China? Well, I I think oil prices are okay. You know, it's not a low oil price. It's not a high oil price. It's a healthy oil price. I think what we have to get our heads around is the fact that China has changed as an economy, right? And so we're not going to see the levels of GDP growth that we were used to, but probably where we are this year, things will continue to go on year over year. Of course, this year we saw 1.5 million barrels per day year-on-year growth in oil demand. And in our view, we'll see 600,000 barrels per day next year, which is probably slightly higher than consensus. But it's not only China. It's also India. It's also non-OECD Asia, ex-China and India that are really driving things. In contrast to the U.S., that even though the U.S. economy, we're firm believers in a soft landing, the problem is the rise in fuel efficiency every year in the U.S. And this is why the driving season disappointed this year and it's probably going to disappoint next year add into that tesla and ev purchases that is also a headwind on on that demand growth if that's a really a big driver of why prices as you call them healthy but not as elevated as people would explain would expect how much can we see prices continue to decline as ev adoption and some of the other types of non-fossil fuel uh, economies build up I think the main difference there, I mean, on the demand side, yes, we will see slow demand and, you know, already for next year, demand growth in our view is 1.4 million barrels per day year on year for the whole world global demand growth, right? But some estimates are already calling for less than 1 million barrels per day, right? I think the other aspect, though, is the supply side, right? Is that right now we are in this still shale boom and that will continue for probably another you know, max 2 million barrels per day. And, you know, we'll say peak U.S. production will be at 15.5 million barrels per day. So when we think about the balance in prices, we will then still have strong oil prices because these long cycle investments are not happening at the pace that they have in the past, given this relatively healthy oil price. So I don't see a long term negative uh a price path for oil, and I expect actually it to strengthen over the coming years. We just have to get through this U.S. shale boom growth period.
Nadia, appreciate your view. Nadia Martin Wigan there of Svelland Capital. Computer hardware maker HP Enterprise joining the Russ to artificial intelligence. In earnings announced this week, HPE saying it expects softer demand for servers and storage, but it's hoping its new AI venture will offset the slowdown. The plan including a bigger partnership with chip giant NVIDIA. Antonio Neri, the CEO of HPE, joining us from Barcelona, where he's been speaking to customers. Antonio, great to catch up with you, sir. Let's start with that relationship with NVIDIA. For our audience who aren't familiar with it, can you describe it to us and how beneficial it's going to be to both of you? Yeah. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. As you see, we are in Barcelona. There's still a show going on. We hosted HP Discover here with more than 3,000 customers. And uh, thanks again for having the opportunity to talk to you. So here at Discover in Barcelona, we announced an expanded partnership uh, with NVIDIA. Two weeks ago at the supercomputer event in Denver, we announced a deep solution for what we call model developers for generative AI using our supercomputing capabilities, plus our intellectual property in the software space, plus NVIDIA uh, chipsets and other aspects of what they do to provide a massive capability for model developers to speed up the training models. And here on Thursday, I announced an extension of the partnership for enterprise customers to what we call fine tune those models and accelerate time to value using our expertise as well as our services capabilities and the software to be able to deploy on-premises and at the edge. So this is a complete solution for what we call the AI lifecycle from training to tuning to inferencing. And customer has a massive reception because they want to privately fine-tune the models with their data in a secure and compliant way. It's clear your stock is benefiting from the glow of NVIDIA. We can see that. I think Raymond James writing that you're getting a seat at the AI table. Can you talk to us about the pace of adoption of this technology? I think many of us, Antonio, are surprised by some of the guidance we had repeatedly from NVIDIA, that this wasn't just a hopeful story about the future. It was real and present. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Well, I think there's two components, right? So the story is absolutely real. We see it in the quality of the dialogues with customers, uh, which are now accelerating their mobile training. Um, so you think about this, at the beginning of 2023, we had less than $100 million, what I call accelerator processing units uh, in our server business. At the end of 2023, we grew that business to $3.6 billion in orders. And that was literally in 10 months. Um, and the reason why that's happened is because the technology has achieved an inflection point where it's ready to be deployed. However, our story is not just AI, just to be clear, Jonathan, Lisa, our story is a combination of a hybrid cloud, a cloud-native world, and an AI-native world. Think about it this way. Most of our data today sits in the cloud-native world, where it's in your premise, in manufacturing floors, in hospitals, and obviously in the public cloud. Uh, but AI needs that data, is hungry for that data, and therefore now we need an AI-native architecture to train and fine-tune these models with that data and then put it in production, which ultimately is the value to change your processes and be able to achieve those outcomes. And we deliver all of that to our HP GreenLake platform. And that's why we see a tremendous growth in our connectivity business, in our hybrid cloud business, and then obviously now in AI. And we have a unique portfolio to address all aspects of what customers need. Antonio, this year we've been talking to so many people who talk about a winner takes all 
type of trend in tech in particular. Amazon's AWS, Microsoft's Azure taking an increasing part of the mar uh, market share. How do you compete at a time where people seem to be gravitating toward the biggest players? Well, there is an interesting uh, opportunity here because obviously the last decade, think about 2010 to 2020, was all about the cloud decade. You know, it, the cloud for us is an experience, uh, is for accelerate speed and agility across the business. And now we enter what I call the new age of insights. And it's all about deriving insights from the data and changing the way you do business. But that, that, that inflection point actually requires a different architecture. And therefore, customers are not keen to put the public data, um, you know, the data in the public domain, and make sure that they control that because that's the intellectual property. And that creates a massive opportunity for us. And we think of HP Green Lake as the fourth cloud. It's a design for hybrid, meaning you can take advantage of the public cloud, but also take advantage of your own premises and more and more at the edge and be able to do everything you need in a unified experience. And that's the value that we bring to the table. And ultimately we have every aspect of the solution stack and the partnerships like we did this week with NVIDIA to give that unified experience. We've been hearing all about uh, consolidation in big tech. How much are some of the biggest cloud providers kind, trying to get into that uh, market where it's basically the hybrid trying to have bespoke uh, solutions for companies versus having the market to yourself? I mean, the market is big. I think, uh, you know, we're talking about over a trillion dollar market opportunity from an IT perspective. And I believe AI opens an incremental $1.6 trillion opportunity for everyone. So there is plenty of market out there. And you think about us as a company, this year we grew 5.5% in revenue. We expand the gross margin very rapidly thanks to the mix and the value we bring to the table. We achieve record-breaking performance in, in non-GAAP, diluted energy per share, and free cash flow. And we believe there's plenty of runway here, but ultimately the winner is about all delivering a simple, simple experience where technology is easy to deploy and consume and ultimately accelerate business outcomes. It's not just about thinking about technology and speeds and feeds, it's about delivering that agility to deliver those business outcomes. And I think HP is uniquely positioned with the fourth cloud, I call it HP Green Lake. Too much tech, let's finish on football. Are you happy oh. that Messi is no longer in Barcelona and we have him here in America now, Antonio? <laughs> well, I'm happy that Messi is Argentinian and I was born in Argentina and I had the honor and pleasure to uh, meet both of them. In fact, uh, I was able to play one time again with Diego Maradona. And I have to say, for us, it's an incredible pride. But obviously having him in the United States gives me the opportunity to go watch him more often. Amazing. I want to hear that Maradona story one day. Antonio, thank you. Antonio Neri <laughs> there. If you look back at, thank you, sir, on the latest. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? 
I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Because four years ago, when I first saw the design for this vehicle, Dan Ives might remember this, I described it as an eight-year-old drawing the car of the future. Just these jagged lines and it looked ridiculous. And here we are, the thing looks phenomenal and everyone wants to buy one, at least the people I speak to. You still think it looks like an eight-year-old drew it, so it's I not do, like I do, but what doesn't. do I know about car design? <laughs> well, because apparently everyone thinks this is the car of the future and they want to buy it. Well, apparently Dan Ives thinks that you're a great candidate to get in one of those and drive off the, off the lot. He's we'll have that conversation right now. Yeah, Dan Ives is your... pitching the Cybertruck to me <laughs> in a commercial happen. break. <laughs> Dan, it's good to see you. Great to be here. Uh, it's fantastic to catch up. This beast, deliveries. Talk to me about how transformational this might be for the company. It's a historic moment. I mean, it's four years in the making, and I think the reason it's important in terms of this could be another growth vehicle for Musk and Tesla, and it also just shows what's happened. 313 area code GM, Ford, peeling back a little on EVs. Tesla is doubling down, and I think this is an important moment and I, 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 and all you go back over the years, many times been count out, but yet they've come out in a flex the muscles moment. I want to talk margins a little bit more with you, but just on the point you made, bringing up GM and Ford, are we finding out that people just want Teslas? They don't want EVs. Look, I think that's it's a serious question here because you know, wanting an EV versus do you actually just want a Tesla? And I think you're starting to see now a moderation in terms of EV demand. Now, clearly, Tesla's had the price war that we've talked about in China. That, that's definitely you know, left a bit of a stand. But I do think from a scale and scope perspective, you look at Fisker reducing guidance again today, no one could match the scale and scope of Musk and Tesla. And I think that lead continues to further be there. And, and I think that's what's happened. A little humble pie, maybe, with traditional automakers. Well, John Lawler was on yesterday, uh, CFO of Ford, and he was talking about how there was a different audience for the initial Teslas because it was the first adopters. And they were willing to pay a price premium, and they were willing to come in, and they were Tesla adopters. The ones who are coming in now are looking for price, value, uh, quality, et cetera. It is a a different pool or that can be pulled away more aggressively. In that kind of environment, does Tesla's margin story start to get eroded? I think, and, and, and John talked about it. I think that's, right now, that's the balancing act. Because if you look from a margin perspective, it's really been volume over margins. And the street, you know, so far, that's been the right strategy. Next two, three quarters, you need to see margins trough out, level out here. But when you look at Cybertruck, look, essentially, they'll be losing, let's say, 30,000, 40,000 per vehicle for the next year and a half. Then it starts to become profitable. But that is the near-term pain for long-term gain that they need to do in what continues to be this green tidal wave. You know, to John's point when he's saying people just want a Tesla, I wonder how much that's people wanting to ride Elon Musk's wave mm -hmm. and how much that was really the feeling a number of years ago. How much some of the recent high-profile discussion around Elon Musk with X, with his colorful interview and, and commentary toward advertisers, does that draw people in or push them away? I think there's still a question there, because to some, it emboldens them. 
in terms of Musk, what he represents. He's the anti, that, that's, you know, I, I affiliate, you know, w with the Tesla. But then on the other hand, you alienate. And the problem for, I think, Tesla investors, when you sell consumer products to the masses, you don't want controversy. But again, Musk is Musk, goes to be of a different drum. And you see, and that's, you know, we saw that maybe overshadow a bit in terms of what happened at the New York Times event, uh, the Cybertruck unveiling that's four years in the making. But at the end of the day, Musk will continue to, I think, innovate, and, and especially when it comes to Cybertruck, a historical moment. What did you think about what happened this week? I think it's one where it's the last thing you want to see as a Tesla bull to see something like that come and ultimately overshadow what was going to be Cybertruck. But as we all know, Musk is Musk. And it goes back to what we've talked about a lot in the show. When he bought Twitter, the $44 billion mistake, in my opinion, which now let's say X is worth five to eight billion, this is always the worry. It just adds that tornado factor. Because with Musk, if you give him a mic, you never know what's going to happen. Sure. And that's part of the problem here. And even though many could say, ah, oh, it's great, go get him. Okay, but there's a business there. It's, it's been essentially taken out with debt. So eventually that you're going to have to, you know, have to pay someone in terms of what's happened with X. I think you just put a Dan Ives multiple on, on X there with that valuation, but we'll come back to that another time. I want to talk about margins just a little bit more. There's a massive opportunity, if you didn't have this truck, to keep on pushing and squeezing Ford and GM. GM have come out with numbers this week, basically telling us that the labor market contract, the labor contract, would add an additional 575 per vehicle. At Ford, it's upwards of 900. Does this truck, truck complicate their effort to really put the squeeze on Ford and GM in the way they have done over the last year? I, I think it does a little, because ultimately, when you look at the UAW debacle and the 313 area code, it's put Farley, bar, it's put back against the wall. And, and that adds to the cost. I think where they're gonna squeeze them continues to really be on that 40 to 50K price points in terms of sedans. That's what they're going after, but that's also why Mary, and you've seen it from Farley as well, they're kind of coming back a little from the edge, not maybe going full EV, where Tesla's actually going the opposite. And that's essentially what's happening right now. This is, this is all a game of high stakes poker. And I think everyone's trying to figure out what Musk's next move is in 2024. And who it's catered to. I mean, that's another question too, because the audiences of Ford and GM much more focused domestically, whereas Elon Musk has a big audience in China as well. How much is the Cybertruck geared toward American buyers, and how much is it geared toward international buyers? Yeah, and Lisa, that's a great point. Because look, China, the hearts and lungs of the Tesla growth story, it is in China, 45% of demand. And I think what really he's focused on here with Cybertruck, it's, first of all, it's showing from an innovation technology perspective just how far they are. But the opportunity, even though it's starting in the U.S., it is international. It's Europe, it's China. And I think that's really the global focus of Tesla. You look at Ford, there's many that have kind of customers fought against going toward an EV. I'm a traditional F-150. I'm not going to go there. Dealers have fought against it. Yes, and same. they've heard it loud and clear uh, in, in Detroit. Do you think it's attractive? Look, the Mad Max vehicle, and I remember when, I remember when you talked about that in sure. 2019, I think we talked about that together. I believe, I get it, it's on the edge, but I think it's innovative, it's new, 
And it's something where Tesla is not going to go down the typical path of other automakers. And that's why, you know, like, look, when I see you driving this in New York about, a, you know, six, nine months now. TK in the passenger seat. TK in the passenger Amazing. seat. It's uh, With Cybertruck, it's going to be Can you take awesome. the roof off? The roof come off? But you could be in the back as well. So okay. it's, it's going to be super interesting. Am I the only one who drives? You are. Yeah, just. Bramo's got to drive. TK and I don't drive. So I'll drive. They drive. get in the back. Bramo, and again, <laughs> but, but, the but, no, but, but Lisa could be driving. You got TK, shotgun, nice. barrels in the back. Yeah, no, sleeping. That's not going to happen. All right, let's go. <laughs> sleeping. Dan, thank you. Dan Ives of Wedbush. Because four years ago, when I first saw the design for this vehicle, Dan Ives might remember this, I described it as an eight-year-old drawing the car of the future. Just these jagged lines and it looked ridiculous. And here we are, the thing looks phenomenal and everyone wants to buy one, at least the people I speak to. You still think it looks like an eight-year-old drew it, so it's I not do, like I do, but what do I know about car design? <laughs> well, because apparently everyone thinks this is the car of the future and they want to buy it. Well, apparently Dan Ives thinks that you're a great candidate to get in one of those and drive off the, off the lot. He's we'll have that conversation right now. Yeah, Dan Ives is pitching the Cybertruck to me in a commercial happen. break. <laughs> Dan, it's good to see you. Great to be here. It's fantastic to catch up. This beast, deliveries. Talk to me about how transformational this might be for the company. It's a historic moment. I mean, it's four years in the making, and I think the reason it's important in terms of this could be another growth vehicle for Musk and Tesla, and it also just shows what's happened. 313 area code GM Ford peeling back a little on EVs. Tesla is doubling down, and I think this is an important moment and I, I, and all you go back over the years, many times been count out, but yet they've come out in a flex the muscles moment. I this want to talk moment. margins a little bit more with you, but just on the point you made, bringing up GM and Ford, are we finding out that people just want Teslas? They don't want EVs? Look, I think that's, it's a serious question here because, you know, wanting an EV versus do you actually just want a Tesla? And I think you're starting to see now a moderation in terms of EV demand. Now, clearly, Tesla's had the price war that we've talked about in China. That, that's definitely you know, left a bit of a stain. But I do think from a scale and scope perspective, you look at Fisker reducing guidance again today, no one could match the scale and scope of Musk and Tesla. And I think that lead continues to further be there. And, and I think that's what's happened. A little humble pie, maybe, with traditional automakers. Well, John Lawler was on yesterday, uh, CFO of Ford, and he was talking about how there was a different audience for the initial Teslas because it was the first adopters. And they were willing to pay a price premium, and they were willing to come in, and they were Tesla adopters. The ones who are coming in now are looking for price, value, uh, quality, et cetera. It is a different pool or that can be pulled away more aggressively. In that kind of environment, does Tesla's margin story start to get eroded? I think, and, and John talked about it. I think that's... Right now, that's the balancing act. Because if you look from a margin perspective, it's really been volume over margins. And the street, you know, so far, that's been the right strategy. Next two, three quarters, you need to see margins trough out, level out here. But when you look at Cybertruck, look, essentially, they'll be losing, let's say, 30,000, 40,000 per vehicle for the next year and a half. Then it starts to become profitable. But that is the near-term pain for long-term gain that they need to do in what continues to be this green tidal wave. You know, to John's point when he's saying people just want a Tesla, I wonder how much that's people wanting to ride Elon Musk's wave mm -hmm. and how much that was really the feeling a number of years ago. 
how much some of the recent high profile discussion around Elon Musk with X, with his colorful interview and, and commentary toward advertisers, does that draw people in or push them away? I think there's still a question there because to some it emboldens them. In terms of Musk, what he represents, he's the anti, that, that's, you know, I, I affiliate, you know, w with the Tesla. But then on the other hand, you alienate. And the problem for, I think, Tesla investors, when you sell consumer products to the masses, you don't want controversy. But again, Musk is Musk, goes to be of a different drum. And you see, and that's, you know, we saw that maybe overshadow a bit in terms of what happened at the New York Times event, uh, the Cybertruck unveiling that's four years in the making but at the end of the day musk will continue to i think innovate and, and especially when it comes cybertruck a historical moment what did you think about what happened this week i think it's one where it's the last thing you want to see as a tesla bull to see something like that come and ultimately overshadow what was going to be cybertruck but as we all know musk is musk and it goes back to what we've talked about a lot in the show when he bought twitter the $44 billion mistake, in my opinion, which now let's say X is worth five to eight billion. This is always the worry. It just adds that tornado factor. Because with Musk, if you give him a mic, you never know what's going to happen. Sure. And that's part of the problem here. And even though many could say, ah, oh, it's great, go get him. Okay, but there's a business there. It's, it's been essentially taken out with debt. So eventually that you're going to have to you know, have to pay someone in terms of what's happened with X. I think you just put a Dan Ives multiple on, on X there with that valuation, but we'll come back to that another time. I want to talk about margins just a little bit more. There's a massive opportunity, if you didn't have this truck, to keep on pushing and squeezing Ford and GM. GM have come out with numbers this week, basically telling us that the labor market contract, the labor contract, would add an additional 575 per vehicle. At Ford, it's upwards of 900 does this truck, truck complicate their effort to really put the squeeze on Ford and GM in the way they have done over the last year? I, I think it does a little because ultimately when you look at the UAW debacle and the 313 error code, it's put Farley, Barr, it's put back against the wall. And, and that adds to the cost. I think where they're going to squeeze them continues to really be on that 40 to 50K price points in terms of sedans. That's what they're going after. But that's also why Mary, and you've seen from Farley as well, they're kind of coming back a little from the edge, not maybe going full EV, where Tesla's actually going the opposite. And that's essentially what's happening right now. This is, this is all a game of high stakes poker. And I think everyone's trying to figure out what Musk's next move is in 2024. And who it's catered to. I mean, that's another question, too, because the audiences of Ford and GM much more focused domestically, whereas Elon Musk has a big audience in China as well. How much is the Cybertruck geared toward American buyers and how much is it geared toward international buyers? Yeah, and Lisa, that's a great point. Because, look, China, the hearts and lungs of the Tesla growth story. It is in China, 45% of demand. And I think what really he's focused on here with Cybertruck, it's, first of all, it's showing from an innovation technology perspective just how far they are. But the opportunity, even though it's starting in the US, it is international, it's Europe, it's China. And I think that's really the global focus of Tesla. You look at Ford, there's many that have kind of customers fought against going toward an EV. I'm a traditional F-150, I'm not gonna go there. Dealers have fought against it, yes, and same. they've heard it loud and clear uh, in, in Detroit. Do you think it's attractive? 
Look, the Mad Max vehicle, and I remember when, I remember when you talked about that in sure. 2019, I think we talked about that together. I believe, I get it, it's on the edge, but I think it's innovative, it's new, and it's something where Tesla is not gonna go down the typical path of other automakers. And that's why, you know, like, look, when I see you driving this in New York about, a, you know, six, nine months now. TK in the passenger seat. TK in the passenger Amazing. seat. It's uh, With Cybertruck, it's going to be Can you take awesome. the roof off? The roof come off? But you could be in the back as well. So okay. it's, it's going to be super interesting. Am I the only one who drives? You are. Yeah, just. Bramo's got to drive. TK and I don't drive. I'll drive. They drive. get in the back. Right, right. And again, <laughs> but, but, we, but, no, but Lisa could be driving. You got TK, shotgun, nice. barrels in the back. Yeah, no, sleeping. That's not going to happen. All right, looks good. <laughs> sleeping. Dan, thank you. Dan Ives of Wedbush. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.